I want to speak to you this morning about the subject of sharing our faith, you know, talking honestly with others about the hope that we have in us, about our relationship with Jesus and what that means in our lives and how that shapes us, changes us and makes us who we are. You know, I think it's an exciting time for us as a church community at the moment. There's a real buzz about our gathering on Sunday mornings. There's a real vigour in the singing of worship songs. And many of us have been challenged and encouraged by the faithful preaching of God's word. And there's more too. There's baptism services to look forward to soon, where many people express their newfound faith in Jesus. And that is so exciting. And so it's a wonderful community to belong to and an exciting time to see God at work as we look forward expectantly to what he has in store for us. But I would hazard a guess that although we may feel like that right now, with so many friends and others around us who share uh, the same faith, come Monday morning, come the start of a new week, we're back to work, the school run, the day-to-day and the difficulties of life, Expressing that faith and hope can seem a long way off. And if we're honest, a real struggle. The idea of evangelizing, of standing up in front of others and declaring our Christian beliefs, for many of us, it's an uncomfortable idea. And the thought of sharing with work colleagues on a Monday morning the contents of yesterday's sermon, well, that's a definite no-go. And the very idea might fill you with dread. The outcome of it all is that we end up feeling guilty or missed opportunities. And at worst, you might feel a sense of being a second-class Christian. I'm not as good as those Billy Grahams of this world. I'm no Tim Keller, who always seems to have the right answers at the right time, who always seems fearless and so convincing when faced with those opportunities. But let me be honest with you. I think that most of us are in that boat. We're in that boat together. Even those of us employed as professional Christians are in the same boat as you. You see, faith isn't meant to be something that we bottle up and keep inside. It was never meant to be like that. The light that we have within us, this new light and life given to us by God, is not meant to be hidden under a bucket. I think that expressing our faith, who we really are, is a bit like breathing. Speaking about God's goodness in our lives and his reality, that's a bit like the lungs moving into action, exercising our faith. It's good, it's natural, it's life-giving. But holding it all in, bottling it up, when it can start to feel a bit stifling and restrictive, we were meant to live, to breathe, to exhale naturally. We would all dearly love to live lives full of integrity and faith that would draw the whole street to a relationship with Jesus, wouldn't we? We would love to have the ability to share Christ effortlessly with others, to lead them to a knowledge of him, or even just to say the G-O-D word out loud in front of people. The truth is, we often feel inadequate and unable to share. So I wonder what the reason behind that is. And how can we overcome it? How can we leave today feeling excited, equipped, and spurred on to express our faith and to live our faith out loud? How can we be in a position where we joyfully and expectantly want to brag about the one who has changed us, has changed our lives? Nothing is more worth talking about. And nothing is easier 
to stay silent about. So let's look for inspiration this morning and look at the one who is widely known as the greatest evangelist that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. We've been following his adventures recently through the book of Acts, and as we're nearing the end of this amazing account of the beginnings of church and the spread of the gospel throughout the world, we see Paul face tough times. He is called upon to talk about his faith, not in front of colleagues or at the school gates, but in a court of law, in front of a hostile crowd and a religious hierarchy who are baying for his blood. He actually faces five trials beginning at Acts 22. And in these accounts, written for us by Luke, they include speeches by Paul defending the faith, sharing his belief, and trust in Jesus. There's about 200 verses devoted to these trials, and we want to hone in on one of them today, which is Acts 24. My prayer for us today is that we would watch carefully how Paul shares his story, how he communicates his story, and how he is able to use his story to tell the greater story of Jesus. And my prayer is that you and I would use our story ultimately to tell his story. Jesus' story to others. So before we head to the courtroom and we read what went on in Acts 24, let's do a bit of catch up and find out why Paul is on trial to begin with. So Paul had recently gone to Jerusalem for the first time in years. And although his friends and followers of Jesus weren't happy with his plan to go there, he is eager to bring news of how the gospel is spreading far and wide to the believers in Jerusalem. He wants to support them both spiritually and financially, and he wants to tend to, their, to the poor there. And as we heard from Sammy last week, Paul pleads that the Lord's will be done. And so they travel, they go to Jerusalem, but while he's there, he's arrested and put into prison. Jews from Asia saw Paul at the temple and they called their friends to seize him. And we read in Acts 21.30 that the whole city was stirred up. He is accused of bringing Greeks into the temple, non-Jews, a practice that was forbidden by their custom. It was inscribed into the walls outside the temple, and that writing is still visible today. They began to beat Paul there until a Roman cohort arrives, and it's here we meet Claudius Lysias, the leader of the Roman cohort. He is a commander of about a thousand troops and he writes a letter to Felix, the governor of Judea, explaining the need for Felix to examine Paul in Acts 23. Lysias wants to pass Paul's case up to a higher authority, to Governor Felix himself. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of 71 elders, has already heard Paul's accusers in what was some kind of pre-trial hearing. There's aggravation, there's violence, there's threats. We read there was great uproar. The high priest, Ananias, orders that Paul be struck on the mouth following his defence. And the next morning we read that there was a plot to kill Paul. More than 40 men are involved in this plot and they are so determined to kill him that they make an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed him. Paul's nephew hears of this plot. It's the only time we hear about Paul's family in the Bible, his sister and her son. And he warns Claudius Lysias, the commander in charge of him and in charge of a thousand troops. 
And so Paul gets whisked away under the cover of darkness by 470 Roman soldiers at 9 p.m. to ensure his safety from these death threats. So a 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And within a couple of days, Paul and his security detail arrive in Caesarea to face Antonius Felix, the governor. And that's your catch-up. That's where we've arrived at in the courtroom to hear Paul face these charges and to hear his defence. Let's begin with the prosecution and read Acts 24, 1 to 9. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullius, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was ordered in, Tertullius presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. I love a good courtroom drama, don't you? Let's begin with some of the characters that we can see in the gallery around the courtroom. We hear that Ananias comes down to the court case, and that shows how seriously the Jews were wanting to banish Paul from them. The high priest himself makes a 60-mile journey to come down He's the high priest I mentioned earlier that ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth whilst he was in front of the Sanhedrin, and he was known as a violent and cruel man. Some of the elders come with him, but they bring in a hotshot lawyer to the courtroom too, a man named Tertullius, a Roman possibly, who was well-trained in rhetoric and dealing with court matters. And that's what he does. He starts flattering the governor, Felix, with over-the-top compliments. Siboni, we say in Welsh, to lather up. And Flatter saying, we've enjoyed long periods of peace under you with profound gratitude, obviously to get on Felix's side. But was Felix a good guy, worthy of these flattering comments? Nothing could be further from the truth. Felix, in fact, was born a slave. And because of his brother was close to the emperor himself, Emperor Claudius, he appointed Felix governor of Judea in AD 52, a sort of jobs for the boys. So you'd think that being once a slave, the lowest of the low, he'd be siding with the outsiders, the outcast. Again, no. Felix was known as a tyrant, practicing every kind of cruelty and lust. He wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave, says Tacitus, the Roman historian. He was such a ruthless and violent man, even Emperor Nero was forced to recall him in later years, where he would have faced justice for his crimes had he not been for his brother. And so Paul is hauled in front of these ruthless three men, and we read that Jewish elders, who were after a guilty verdict for him, were there too. And he faces three false charges. Did you see them in verse 5 to 9? 
that one, he was a troublemaker, the most serious of all, causing riots, riots among the Jews. Number two, the lesser charge of being a leader of a sect, an illegal practice in Roman law, unless the sect was approved. And then number three, the charge of desecrating the temple. We see that these things are really serious here for Paul. He's in a vulnerable, dangerous situation in a court of law, on his own, in front of an immoral governor on trumped up charges. He's tired from beatings and unjust treatments. So how did he do it? How did he stand up? What sustained him? What kept him going? Well, I'm going to give you four P's today. Every good preacher has three alliterated points, but I'm going to give you one extra. P, the first one, Paul knew the presence of Jesus. Paul knew the presence of Jesus. If you track back with me to an earlier chapter, to Act 23, and in the midst of that chaos where he's just escaped serious flogging by the centurion, there's a near riot in the Sanhedrin as the Jews are angry with him. Paul experiences the nearness and the presence, the reality of Jesus there in that place. The following night, Acts 23:11 says, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In the barracks, in the middle of this chaos, the Lord Jesus comes to Paul with great comfort and power and reassurance. Sammy talked last week about Paul wanting the Lord's will to be done. Well, here it's loud and clear from the Lord himself. His will is that Paul would testify about him in the great capitals of the known world, Jerusalem and Rome. And so Paul's fuel, his confidence as he faced his trial before Felix, was a real knowledge that God was with him. Quite literally here, more so, he was living out God's will of testifying to his grace and good news at this critical, crucial time for the church in its early infancy. And we see that that occurs around three times in the book of Acts. As Paul is about to face severe tests, Jesus meets him and encourages him. The risen Jesus meets him. And as we fast forward 2,000 years from that courtroom to our working day, to that coffee break with friends or opportunity to speak to others about our faith, we can begin in the same place as Paul, a knowledge a deep assurance that Jesus is with me. The presence of Jesus, maybe not a face-to-face -face meeting with the risen Jesus just before your coffee break, but a quiet confidence that Jesus is with me, the Holy Spirit is living in me, a real presence, and he is equipping me. He is giving me the words to say and to testify about him. We can't do this in our own strength and our own desire. We can't muster that strength up. But to know that the master is on your side and you're doing his will, well, that puts a whole different angle on it. As Jesus says to Paul, take courage. Take it. Take courage. Jesus is offering it to us in the form of his presence and with a knowledge that we have the Lord of heaven and earth on our side, we can really take courage. And so we move on from the prosecutors in the courtroom to the defence. 
And as Paul is invited to take to the stand, let's hear from Acts 24, verses 10 to 21, and hear Paul outlining his defence and the case for the gospel. Acts 24, 10 to 21. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul lays out his defence by directly answering those three charges against him. You notice that as he took to the stand, he didn't use flattery or bombast to address the governor, but says that he's glad of the opportunity. And we see that in the face of immense threat, Paul is really contending for his life here. He has the courage to share and to stand up for the gospel. As we mentioned earlier, he has the courage to tell his story but through that, to tell the greater story of God, our Saviour. So how does he do it? Well, our second P is power. Through the power of the gospel. In 1955, at the height of the Cold War, a young 5 for 10 American named Paul Anderson went over to the Soviet Union to take them on at their national sport, that of weightlifting. Obviously, tensions were high between the two nations to begin with, but as Paul Anderson took over the bar and stood over it to attempt his lift, the commentator quipped that the Russians sniggered as the, Ameri the American gripped the bar, which was set at 182 kilos, an unheard of lift. But their sniggers quickly changed to all and all out cheers, as up went the bar and Anderson lifted the heaviest weight overhead of any human in history. He was known as the strongest man in the world. But Anderson and his wife had a deep faith in Jesus. And he would often say this, if the strongest man in the world can't get through one day without the power of Jesus Christ, where does that leave him? Without the power of Jesus Christ, where does that leave him? You see, Paul knew the power of the gospel at work in his own life, and he sets out what that means. 
In verse 14, he says that he admits that I worship the God of our fathers and to follow the way which they called a sept. He emphasizes that he worships the same God of Israel. He believes in the law and the prophets and says that he believes in the resurrection, like his accusers, the Jews. In front of the council, the officials, the elders and Felix, the governor, under immense pressure, he sets out his hope, his trust in Jesus, and brings the good news of the gospel front and center of this trial. You see, you don't need to go to Bible college in order to grasp the gospel. It is simple. You don't need to be in ministry to grasp the gospel. It's simple. You don't need to have been a Christian for five minutes to grasp the gospel well, well enough to convey it to others. All you need to understand is that 2,000 years ago, an invasion took place. Heaven came to earth in the person of Jesus and he inaugurated a whole new kingdom. For 33 years, he lived a life of unflinching, perfect faithfulness to God the Father. He was mesmerizing to be around. You can take your eyes off Jesus. He was so attractive as a person that thousands and thousands of people would follow him, listen to him, watch him as he healed the sick, rose people to life and brought his kingdom and his rule to this earth. In other words, he lived a life that, try as we might, we can't live. And because he loves us, he died the death that we deserved to die. As a believer in Jesus, I know that on that cross, he was treated as if he had lived my sinful life, so that I might be treated as I have lived his righteous life. And there he was buried until on the third day, he was raised to life, defeating sin and death to reign forever. Paul puts it elsewhere that at the beginning of his letter to Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So how does that change the way that I approach sharing my faith with others? How does that knowledge of the gospel gives me confidence. Notice where Paul's strength lies, where the power lies. Is it in Paul's magnificent skills as a public speaker? Was it his confidence and his ability uh, to speak? Well, there's no doubting his skill and craft as a great debater and orator, but it would be all empty without the power, the force behind it. Notice it's in the gospel itself that is the power of God. The good news itself that has the power to change and to transform lives. And that takes a certain pressure off, doesn't it? It is God's work ultimately to transform lives, not our persuasive skills. So we rely on his presence with us and his power ultimately. The other thing that I admire about Paul in this exchange with the authorities is that he is in tune to the way that they are thinking and takes them on at their own game. Paul seems a master at contextualization. It's a long word. It's the ability to click right into their language and culture using their processes and thoughts and flips them towards the gospel. It's like spiritual jujitsu, using their opponent's strength, their own force, to win the battle or the argument. He says to the Jews that he has the same hope in God as these men. 
that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. You know, this week it's been the year of the Stelvod, just up the road here in Llandavri. And it was amazing to see so many of our kids and young people do so well on the main stage. Well, I tell you another great thing about the Estelvod is that you meet so many people far and wide. It's like being in a real life Facebook page where there's a whole field of people you know all meet for the first time. And what do we like asking as proper Welshmen? Where are you from? And then we try our hardest to make a link between that place or that person with us, however tenuous. You're not content as Welsh people until that link is done. Oh, you must know so-and-so, and it really is a, a national sport. But how I answer that question is a matter of contextualization. Most people on the Estepford feel I could brag about Bonshoin or Llandabier without hesitating. If I was in downtown Johannesburg facing the same questions, where are you from? If I said Mavanvich, I think I'd get some strange looks. It's all about contextualization, understanding and appreciating the culture, the context, the language, even the hopes and fears of our friends before we start sharing our faith. I love how Matt Smethers puts it in his wonderful book, Before You Share Your Faith. He says, when it comes to the gospel, we don't need to dress it up in order to make it cool. We need to break it down in order to make it clear. We need to make it simple. You see, clarity is at the heart of effective communication. We don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel uh, power that changes people's lives. And for others to meet Jesus uh, in the same way that has changed our lives. Paul says that to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. So finally, we move on from the courtroom to a private audience with the governor. Let's look at the final piece of Acts 24 as Paul meets the governor head on and read Acts 24 and verses 22 to 27. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Like any good legal drama, much of the action happens outside the courthouse. And that's what we see here. Luke the author of Acts lets us eavesdrop on a conversation between the prisoner, Paul, and the ruling couple, Felix and Drusilla. Now, we've already established that Felix was an unsavoury character. Once a slave, he now wields his power as a cruel governor. 
not a very decisive governor at that. Did you notice that having had the trial in front of him, he couldn't make a decision on what to do next? He dilly-dallies and buys himself time. This, of course, gives Paul more opportunity to share the gospel, the good news, but this time directly with the most important couple in the region. Speaking truth to power is a well-known phrase, isn't it? And this is exactly what we see here. Paul has two years in the company of these two. And although it seems a real travesty that this empty, false trial has led to two years of imprisonment for no real reason, yet God uses it for good. And that's hard for us to get our head around sometimes, isn't it? We might think that if Paul was God's main player in evangelizing and spreading the gospel to the early church, would it be better if he spoke in front of audiences of thousands and stadiums full of people and we would see conversions by the thousands each night? Wouldn't that be a better plan? Well, no. We see that God's main player is here in a Roman prison for another stretch of time, having a one-to-one -one with a Roman governor. We read that Felix and his wife Drusilla sent for Paul frequently and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is persistent in his sharing of the gospel. And that's our third P this morning, persistence. We read that Felix calls for him at other times as well, and that he is curious about Christianity and he is well acquainted with the way. And I guess for us, sometimes we might feel in a bit of a dead end situation when it comes to sharing our faith. We're not seeing results. There's years of barrenness, things going nowhere. And we see here that Paul's persistence is a lesson for us, an encouragement for us. Even with the most unsavory characters in society, a scary power couple like Felix and Drusilla, Paul persists to talk truth to power. And so that's our final P this morning, persistence. Sharing our faith confidently and naturally with others means that we know the presence of God with us. Two, understand and treasure the power of the gospel. And three, being persistent in our witness, taking every opportunity, even in the most unlikely of places. But our fourth P, and finally, all of this can't happen without the P of prayer. Everything is clothed and bathed in prayer because it comes down to that presence of God once again that Paul knew. He knew the presence of Jesus. He prayed, he wept, he pleaded with God consistently. And so for us, those three P's of knowing the presence of God, the power of the gospel, and the persistence in sharing can only work with a final, final P of prayer. God bless you.